Christmas fair. Rudolph's bits. Olaf's nose. What was it? Rudolph's bits were mouldy. That was the. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Well, there's the title to this week's episode. I don't even know what's coming next, but I think we're going to go with that. <laughs> Rudolph's bits were mouldy. Yeah, Excellent. The, the headline from the fair, the problem was, so Rudolph's bits, or as the committee decided to call it Olaf's nose, A, because Rudolph's bits is a little bit suggestive, and secondly, Olaf is a big frozen thing that I've never seen. But it's carrots. You paint the tips of some carrots. You put it in a big thing planter and then in sand and then you pull out a carrot and if it's got a colored tip you win a prize you win like a sweet right very simple right okay oh, okay that is actually it was sounding very complicated for a while <laughs> okay. it's very I'm with you now so on the monday fairs on the front on the monday i got the boys sat down they painted all the tips of the carrots great pink gold glitter brilliant okay carrots done and then i had another bag of carrots because you got to mix them up didn't give the carrots a second thought until the day of the fair. Going to the fair, they were kind of, they'd had it. I think they were poisoned by the paint, the glitter, <gasps> the glue. And they were really kind of squishy, a bit old and moldy. Oh. So when we put them in the planter in the sand, and they were all sticking up the tips, you, you had the kind of, the kind of grey, black, grizzly, squishy ones. <laughs> were the painted ones then these beautiful orange things were, were the normal ones so very quickly people figured out that if you picked up a gray squishy moldy one you won a prize so basically rudolph's bits olaf's nose was outside in a tent we took away the lights so, <laughs> so people were playing the game in darkness so they couldn't see the dodgy carrots oh. is basically it so that, yeah. i mean it's kind of well at least they could see oh i wouldn't really want to pick up a Brown and mouldy carrot. I suppose if I win it, how good's the prize though? What sort of prizes are we giving out? Oh, we're talking we're talking a lolly or a sweet. It's not come on, it's Yeah, it's, it's not it's not worth grabbing a, a, a mouldy carrot it's for that. Fifty P to grab Rudolph's bits. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's that's all we're I asking. mean, if it was like an iPad or something, then I'd happily go for it. <laughs> that's, that's a shame. That's all we're asking. But it was it was a huge success. Everyone picked up his bits. A lot of people, including my boys, wanted to have a go. They were the only ones that didn't figure out that the mouldy carrots were the painted ones. And I was oh, like... Oh, no. I was whispering, pick up, pick up that one, that one, that sort of grey one. Go on, go on. And they're like, no, mummy, I like this orange one. I'm like, no. So, but I think it was fine. And then at the end of it, the boys, understandably, they're four, don't know the meaning of a raffle. Sure. They just, you know, when you buy a ticket, you win a prize. But raffle, obviously... That's not how it works, right? So we bought some raffle tickets. They looked at the prizes. They decided on the one they wanted to win. Kept explaining. It's not how it works. Didn't go in. I, th I was worried that, you know, things might take a turn for the worse. Should they not win? Then I won. Not not that hamper, but I won a hamper. Oh, did you win your hamper? Uh, I, don't, I think I'll take this one all of my stuff back <laughs> I put can you imagine that you make a hamper with all the stuff from around your house put it all together that's lovely that's, that, that's and then you look at everybody else's hampers and they're rubbish and you think hang on a minute I've pulled my weight with my hamper and then if you win the hamper you can have it back didn't necessarily want my bits back um, <laughs> mine had been mine had been spread out but luckily I did win a hamper for children oh, okay well that's like for the boys so it wasn't the one they wanted, but I said, look what mummy won. And everyone was very happy. And it was a very happy end to a lovely evening. It sounds like a blast. <laughs> no, it was good. A lot of money was raised. That's the main thing about the school fair. 
um, the, the committee does an amazing job and lots of mulled wine was drunk, cakes were eaten, prizes were won, children were high on sugar. Oh, but the funny thing was, and then I'll stop talking about the fair, is we went to Santa's Grotto. And I've got to say, okay. amazing Santa. Whoever it was, I mean, obviously it was Santa, but amazing, like proper, proper Father Christmas, right? Nice. So the kids sit in a circle and he goes around, you know, what's your name? And they all say their names. Da, da, da. And then he said to this kid, so what do you want for Christmas? And he went, you should know. <laughs> the wish point. Father Christmas went, sorry? He said, well, if you're Father Christmas, you should know what I want for Christmas. <laughs> oh, he's savvy. And there was like this really awkward silence in the room when Father Christmas was like, well, I, I just don't know what to say. And the boy's mother looked a little bit embarrassed. And the boy was like, well, come on then. Tell me what I want. <laughs> and it was just a, it was a strange moment. Oh. Until another child just... Poor Father Christmas. Well, another child just leapt in and said, I want a, I don't know, a camera. And then it was all fine. But it's that kind of like, you should know. Which is a fair enough question, because we spend the whole time saying, write a letter to Santa, whatever, post it, and he'll bring you presents. So you can't blame the boy for kind of doing what we sort of tell them, really. But, yeah. Yeah, and he hasn't even read it. Exactly. Well, he's poor little fella. He left with, I think he left with a book wasn't what he wanted but he never actually said what, <laughs> <laughs> what he wanted so um no so school fair was good first of many it was a lot of fun and you you don't have a cock are you still on your honeymoon yeah still going that's crazy what it's been two weeks what's wrong with that that is not excessive i don't know if it feels a long time uh, well, it, today is day 14 so tomorrow we fly home on day 15 so 15 days technically or 14 i don't know but yes, it's the last day and I'm talking to you. Ha, definitely got that right. <laughs> uh, uh, that's how much you mean to me. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, it's been two weeks. It's been amazing. It's been epic, complete adventure. Um, so cool. We've walked so far. We were adding up the, the kilometers that we had done. Uh, we were well over 100 and that was a few days ago. That was before we even got to the Atacama Desert and we've done plenty more here. So uh, probably looking at like 130 Ks covered by feet during wow. the trip. So that's um, that's pretty fun. That's impressive. And you're what you're ending your time in the desert, is that right? Yeah, it's, it actually, it's really nice. It's very relaxing. It's nice and warm. So I'm not going to say I'm going to come back with a tan. That's not happening. But uh, I might have a few extra freckles. Well, no, I can see you and you don't have one. So there's that then. Oh. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say I look freckly. Oh no, freckles <laughs> possibly, but but the tan you kind of look the same. Okay, well from a distance I'll look tanned. That's that's always my aim with the freckles. But <laughs> and also to be fair, I'm not I'm not sat next to Ben right now because when I sit next to Ben, I look very tanned. So that's... oh, is he not a person that tans? Yeah, no, at all, not at all. Um, so it's, it's good use at all. No, not at all. Keep close, exactly, and I look great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's been amazing why don't you have a cocktail are you not in an all-inclusive resort have you left that place no no we're in a different place but it's another all-inclusive resort <laughs> of course <laughs> i just don't have a cocktail with me right now um we're drinking a little bit less because we're really really high altitude this is the highest desert in the world the driest desert in the world so you can get altitude sickness really easily so being kind of hungover or dehydrated from alcohol is just not really a good idea when you're going on like a 20k trek in the desert so uh a little less on the cocktails but we went heavy at the first two places so it's worked out okay I actually want to ask you I actually want to bring in tennis amazingly enough <laughs> but when we talk about tournaments when players 
play at altitude. I think largely a lot of people are like, okay, yeah, whatever, just just get on and play. How difficult is it to play at altitude? And what's the, not worst experience, but what's the highest altitude you've ever played at? Because I think some people will just say, they'll just say, oh, like Madrid, oh, it's, it's at altitude. And it's just a sentence they say without actually thinking about the effect it has on the players. Well, yeah, I mean, there are different levels of, of altitude. I mean, Madrid is about 600 metres, so it just feels a little zippier. It doesn't really change anything. But when you're playing in sort of Bogota or if they had an Atacama Open, for example, here, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I the, the highest altitude I've played, I played altitude in South Africa and I've played altitude in Mexico. And the first time I ever played it was in Mexico. And you use the depressurized balls. So it's just in a cardboard box. There's no can, there's no pressure. They're just these kind of ball-shaped things that look like tennis balls, but they don't feel like <laughs> tennis balls at all. And there are also some like weird make that you've never heard of. So because, you know, Wilson don't really do depressurized walls or maybe they do but anyway they weren't using them in Mexico some random make I'd never heard of and everybody says like oh yeah the ball flies and all this sort of stuff and I thought okay great that's going to suit me a little bit and you feel like oh it's going to be a bit zippy you know when there are warm conditions or if you're in Melbourne it's warm and it's dry and and that's the thing about here actually in Atacama is it's very warm very dry um very high so playing tennis here would be an absolute nightmare like <laughs> it would just be so tough but the first time I played in Mexico, I kind of was going and thinking, yeah, this is going to just make my game better. I mean, it was mental. I, I can't even explain. I mean, this is this is really high altitude that we played at in Mexico. So breathing is difficult, you know, everything. But I, honestly, in the, you know how sometimes, well, the, the women do. Men don't really do it, but well, sometimes they do. But warming up in the service boxes. And I just, I just kind of just popped the ball in. And it just sailed and it nearly hit the back fence. And I thought, oh, it, it's like there's no gravity. <laughs> the wall just doesn't come down. And you spend, you spend, the first session is just trying desperately to get the ball into the court. It, it's, it's unbelievable. It's just all of your senses, everything's totally out of whack. It is very confusing. Now, you go to Madrid and you play at 600 meters, it's fine. It just feels quick. Just, just feels quick, feels lively, feels zippy. And you just kind of go, oh, you know, you might take a little, a few shots to be kind of like, right, I really need to get a bit a better grip on the ball here. But when you're properly at altitude, it is crazy. But fitness wise, what do you have to do? Prepare yourself. Yes, you've got to work on in your first session, getting the ball in court, which is very useful. But physically, you talk about being out of breath. If you end up in an epic match, how on earth do you cope physically in those conditions? Um, it's very difficult. If you're not used to being an altitude, I mean, firstly, altitude sickness is a thing that can happen. I mean, I don't think there are any tournaments played necessarily high enough to get altitude sickness. But it's just, it's the, the air's very thin. You have less oxygen, right? So you, you need to be in it. You need to spend a few days acclimatizing. And then once you do that, you're fine. You know, it does feel normal in the end. But the first few days, you just feel a little bit lightheaded when you get out of breath. Your heart rate goes up uh, higher, quicker. So you have to try and deal with that. The Colombians did it, didn't they? In their qualifying match for Davis Cup they played against Sweden and they played in Bogota and it was something like 3,000 meters above sea level or something crazy and the Emers were the team for Sweden the two young guys who from all accounts I don't know this for sure but from what 
I've heard about the match and how it unfolded, they've probably never experienced altitude before <laughs> because they didn't necessarily have long enough to acclimatise and the balls were just flying. I mean, they both lost quite comfortably to players that you would imagine they'd be very competitive with. Um, but, you know, look, clever from Colombia. You've got the home and away thing, haven't you? So, um, yeah, no, it's great. But it is, I mean, it, it's fun if you can get your head around it, but it's not very fun if you follow where they met to Mexico to find that you just can't get the ball in the court. That's quite upsetting. <laughs> You're thinking, okay, high altitude tournaments off the list. But <laughs> what you don't realize, obviously, particularly on the ITF uh, tournaments, so the challenges, which are slight, which are lower than the WTA events, WTA events tend to stay quite the same through each year. Like there are a few changes here and there, but on the whole, it's the same events. So you know what they're all like, but the challenges chop and change all the time. Each calendar is new each year. You just don't really know where they are and what they're doing. So a lot of players just have no idea. They turn up to a tournament and they get this deep, this depressurized ball and think, what on earth is this? This isn't a tennis ball. I want to play with this. What's going on? Uh, but you know, you get that a lot on the challenger circuit. You turn up to courts and there's no baseline and they say, yep, you're playing on that. So you go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot you have to cope with when it comes to to the challenges some, some amazing <laughs> stories but yeah but plenty of people will look at the fact sheet it doesn't say it's altitude or anything there's nothing to say this much above sea level or, or anything like that players will just turn up get to site and go why can't i get the ball in is there anything beneficial to playing at or training at altitude in terms of helping you throughout the season or is there really not Oh, yeah, huge benefit. It gets you to a point where you're struggling for breath quicker. So it's easier to get to that sort of red zone, as it were. So if you need to do some red zone training and push yourself and push your heart rate, it's far easier to do it at altitude. So you get a lot of people will do an off-season at altitude, not necessarily in tennis. It doesn't, I don't think it, it... it's really done. I don't really hear of anybody going to altitude. Most people go to Florida, don't they? There's like no altitude at all. It's just sea level the whole way. <laughs> there isn't a hill in the whole of Florida. It's dead flat. <laughs> but um, in, in a lot of sports, a lot of kind of running and endurance sports, they do a lot of um, mountain sort of training to help give, them, give themselves a boost. But I know that tennis players use it a lot for training recovery. So when I was training at NTC, we had a chamber. You know, you have a chamber which is lower on oxygen and some people sleep in those chambers. I know tennis players do that. They bring them around the world with them and then they put their bed in a in a lower oxygen chamber. Maybe it's higher oxygen. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> they sleep in some sort of oxygen chamber. I don't know whether it's less or more, but it helps. Here we go with the loose facts. <laughs> well, I've never done it. So I don't know what I really shouldn't talk about other people. Hang on. You, you've never been in one of these chambers, although there were chambers at the NTC. No, I have trained in a low oxygen chamber so you take the oxygen down and then you train in it so it's like doing high altitude training you reduce the oxygen you make it more difficult to breathe more difficult for your body to cope in the environment you jump on the treadmill you hate every second of life and think one earth am i a tennis player and all i'm thinking about is retiring and then it means (laughs) when you go on to court and there's more oxygen in the air you feel a bit better wow that that sounds would that be something standard in in pre-season to get yourself ready for the rigors of the season yes um yeah and i mean for example i mean when i was recovering from uh having uh chronic fatigue uh with the god this is this is years and years ago we actually went to um a sort of a i don't want to call it a clinic but essentially they had 
these oxygen masks and you almost did you did intervals well they weren't oxygen masks they were masks with a lack of oxygen in them so they could control how much oxygen you were breathing in the mask and you had to do sort of five minutes on three minutes off five and because I couldn't do any running so I I couldn't do any training because with chronic fatigue you just have to wait you just have to kind of eat a lot sleep a lot and try and wait that was the first sort of training I guess that I did was go and sit with an ox a lack of oxygen mask (laughs) Uh, and almost because it it raises your heart rate because you have to you have to pump the blood quicker to get the oxygen around because there's not as much of it I'm sure there are going to be plenty of scientists going what on earth is she talking about (laughs) that's not what happened and I'm just nodding all I can tell you is that's what they told me (laughs) So I went, okay, thumbs up, here we go. So that was the first uh, sort of step of training. And then it was kind of going for walks and then you build up from there. Very tedious, but it was very helpful at the beginning. Can I just say I'm your best audience ever because I just nod. I know, exactly. (laughs) This is why I'm allowed to say anything I want. This is terrible. Whether it's because sometimes I'm not listening or I generally don't know if you're speaking the truth. When you told me about those junior matches when someone won a set six love... And, and the person who lost the set goes up and changes the scoreboard. So they've yeah. won the set six, love. I mean, that's something that stayed with me since you told me because I cannot believe something like that is possible. And you could have just made that up. And I was just nodding along in agreement. Now I've seen that. I'm maybe not six, love, but I've seen like a six, two set be put the other way and then players having to start the whole match again. So. That's as bad. Six, love, six, two. I mean, it's just as bad. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. I, I can say, I can tell you that I never did it. <laughs> and I actually was never on the receiving end of it, although I always feared I would be because there's just nothing you can do about it. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. But I saw a lot of my, I saw it happen to a lot of my friends. How is there nothing you can do about it? Because there's nothing you can do, but there's no official. It's your word against theirs. So you well, start you just again. Go, yeah, but you just go back and you just go back and turn it around again. And you just keep yeah, doing it. Yeah, and then the official gets called to court. So we wait for the umpire. The umpire comes on and they say, sorry, I wasn't watching because I've got three courts to watch at the same time. I didn't know what the score was. So we'll just, it's, it's either you go from the score you last agree. So that might be like one all. Or you just start again. Normally it's the score you last agree. But if you can't agree on a score, then you just start again. Can I tell you about the tennis world? What have you missed out on? What have you heard whisperings of? What do you know? Do you know anything? I've I've heard uh, whisperings of another retirement. A big... I mean, how could I miss this? This is a big retirement. A significant retirement. Former world number one Grand Slam champ in Caroline Wozniacki. Calling it a day. Almost. Just wants to squeeze out one more major. I'm not sure if she can win it. Maybe she can. But um, yeah, she wants to finish the end of Australian Open. So I hear. That's pretty much all the information I've got. But Yeah, no, the, the, I mean, there's been lots of, of posts looking back on her career. We'll get even more when it's officially over. But she's decided and she's realised that there is more to life outside of tennis. I mean, she's now married to her husband, David Lee. And she did make a point, though, of saying it wasn't because of the rheumatoid arthritis. Right. Which she is still dealing with and getting used to and getting treatment for. Because I think a lot of people thought when that announcement came, came out at the end of the year she won the Australian Open I think a lot of people thought oh well okay she's she's been number one she's now it was one of those cases wasn't it that she was number one through hard graft playing tournaments and winning tournaments but because she hadn't won a grand slam you'd get those people saying well is she a true like Dinara Safina is she a true number one because she hasn't won a grand slam then she 
won the Australian Open title. She was engaged to be married. And then she revealed that she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And I think a lot of people thought, well, I can't see her carrying on too much. And she made a big point of saying, it's got nothing to do with that. I want to sort of prove that I can still play to a higher level, to a high level. But I think she just realized there is, you know, she's got a whole world waiting for her once she stops playing tennis. Yeah, and I don't think she's never really hidden the fact, not that you ever should, but some people tend to, I suppose, that that has been a big priority for her. You know, kind of having a family and life after tennis has always been something she's looked forward to. She's not necessarily kind of wished it to be here quickly, but it's always been something that she's looked forward to and obviously getting married to David Lee is a big step in that direction for her that was what she wants wanted to do she's now settled and and she's got that done so then you know the, the next logical thing would be to start the family that she has talked about that she you know has always wanted to have one day and it's been it has felt like that sort of pivotal year, hasn't it? Because of the rheumatoid, the rheumatoid arthritis, because of getting married, everything was kind of being pushed in that direction. Because she had won the Australian Open, and look, let's let's be re- reasonable. She's done an incredible job with her arthritis, but it it's been tough. It's been a really difficult thing for her to manage. It's been up and down. So it, it, it's been a lot, I think, packed in to the year and it's not that she was looking for an excuse to finish her career it's just that she's always been moving in that direction you know there are some players who are playing and just have absolutely no consideration of stopping just not 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 even a thought in the world I mean Serena had a baby most successful player of all time and was still kind of like why on earth would I stop playing that's a ridiculous thing to say like it's just not on her radar Venus Williams is just she just keeps going and going and going and you know there are guys like that as well and then there are others that you know, somebody like a Kim Kleist has always said, you know, kind of, well, you know, this is just for a time and that sort of thing. And so Wozniacki's always been in that camp. So to have a year where she's been dealing with the rheumatoid arthritis and she's been taking a big step into that next part of life by getting married to David Lee, it kind of makes a lot of sense. I don't think anyone was really that surprised. I don't know, were you surprised? I wasn't. Not really. Um, And especially when on social media she's doing so many other things and she's got so many other interests and her profile is such that she can do whatever she wants to do now I'm wondering about her dad Piotr how life will be for him because I'm sure they spoke about this but ultimately it's her decision it is her decision to to stop traveling to stop playing I'm sure she'll or maybe she won't be involved in in tennis in in some way or another but her dad has been by her side, traveling with her. You know, I I always find it weird. We talk about, well, she's been on tour for this many years since she was a young girl, but so is her dad. It's also been her dad's life. It's now Caroline's decision to stop playing. And you kind of wonder with her dad, is it either, is it, yeah, is it one of relief of, I can be normal and go back to my, my family and my wife and be based... Or will it will it hit him quite hard because it wasn't essentially his decision? And also, he is fundamentally a tennis coach now. And I know he was Caroline's father as well, but he has coached her. And yes, they've had help along the way. But as you say, he's been there for every step of the way and has been her on-court coach for all of the on-court coaching sessions we've seen. And, and he has coached her to huge success 
absolutely huge success. I mean, to win a Grand Slam with the game that she's got, quite a defensive game. It's not a game like an Osaka who could just kind of thump her way through for a bit and, and maybe pick up a slam. I mean, I know Osaka's won two now, so it's not like it was a one-off, but... You know, that was not easy for her to do. She'd put herself in good situations so many times. She was, I mean, just, I mean, could you say that possibly she was the most consistent player for the past decade? Probably. Like, she's got to be up there. Okay, the most consistent at winning slams is, of course, Serena. But in, in terms of just week in, week out, being a WTA player, doing your job, putting on a show, traveling around the world... I mean, she's barely been injured. I mean, she had that ankle thing, which was a bit of a big deal. But anyway, back to Piotr, like you were saying, it will be interesting, won't it? Because if he wants to continue to be a tennis coach, because he's got life after Caroline's career now as well to consider, will he be able to coach somebody else? Or was the father-daughter relationship so unique? Because I imagine as a coach, you can speak to your daughter a little differently to how you can speak to just a player that you've been working with for three months or six months or whatever. So it'd be interesting to see what he does, whether he coaches or whether he just goes, no, do you know what? That was just for Caroline. I just did it all for her and, and that that was it. And then he can put his feet up. It doesn't seem like the feet up sort. <laughs> it's, I think it's going to be really interesting because it's, I think when you've had a career like that and you have a, a team around you, we always focus on the player who it was my decision to retire or injury forced me to retire. But what about those people around you? It's been their life as well, and they've made sacrifices and they've lost out on things along the way and they've gained things along the way. But you, you kind of sometimes forget about that team that follows you dutifully around the world and is it your every whim, your every beck and call, they are there. Uh, I just think it's quite interesting because it's uh, you're, you're a business, you're an empire in her. You know, there, there's agents and PR people and some people have hitting partners who they travel the world with. So it's interesting when something like that comes to an end, there are a lot of people who go along with it. And I don't know, maybe they, they go on to other players. Maybe they leave tennis completely or maybe in her dad's case, he thinks, oh, just going to take it easy. But it's uh, I, I think it will be emotional in Australia. It's I, I, I hope the draw is kind. I know she's back in pre-season, seems to be doing everything as if she were about to start a full season. So it's not as though she's just sort of out there partying and she's going to roll up at the Australian Open. But yeah, I, I hope the draw's kind and it will be interesting. I don't think she's going to win it at all, but I'd like her to have a good run and then off she goes to do... I, look, we're going to hear from her plenty more in the future. She's not exactly going to retire to a hut in the middle of a forest, is she? no. Absolutely not. No, I, I do. Uh, I agree with you. I hope that the draw is kind. It's fitting that it's at the Australian Open. But and I know you said that she's putting in a preseason as if she were playing a full season. But I just wonder. I mean, I'm not you know, accusing her of anything, but just I mean, but can you? I mean, can you be that kind of committed, knowing that? I mean, she's just going to play a couple of tournaments, um, and that's it. And actually, by the end of January. She's no longer a professional tennis player. That That's it. That's quite weird, isn't it? It's quite weird, despite the fact it's her decision. That moment, and, and we've talked about this before on podcast, you know, you wake up that morning and you are no, that is no longer your job. It's over. There is no tournament to get to. The, the schedule that you've had in place for years is not there. That structure of someone saying, right, you're on this plane. You're Maybe it's amazing. Maybe it's an amazing feeling. Or, as I've spoken to 
to some players, former players, it's a feeling of being absolutely lost yeah. when you wake up that morning and that schedule that's been there is not there. Yeah, I think it's a, a large chunk of players that feel that way. So much of it is, it's the purpose, isn't it? It's the purpose of life. It's the meaning. It's the getting up in the morning. What are you doing with your life? And it can be very difficult. Now, Caroline has been pretty open and honest that the purpose of her life is now different. So she, it seems like she's going to just shift quite comfortably into that. Um, but for others who don't have that as kind of right, this is now the meaning of my life, that, you know, that's very difficult. It's a big part of just general happiness, meaning and purpose in your life. And if you lose that, it can be very difficult to maintain any, any sort of balance mentally. But because she already knows where her purpose lies, and actually I think the reason for her stopping is because her purpose lies somewhere else now, I think that she'll navigate that just fine. The only, I think, one exception to the rule would be Kim Kleisters, who's now coming back. And that's somebody who had the purpose of being a professional tennis player, decided that she wanted her purpose to be with having a family and has now, when she's come back, she came back and then she went back to have the family and now she's coming back yet again. So I don't know, maybe she's just very adept at shifting around the purpose that, that she has or maybe she doesn't really know where she wants it to be I don't know um, but it, it's a very difficult thing to do and I, I agree with you that a number of players when they finish playing just have no idea I mean I was the same you know just just no idea what you're doing not to say that she's underappreciated now but do you think that Caroline Wozniacki is going to be a player not a person but as a player someone we're going to appreciate more once she stops playing tennis I think so I think we will because, look, I I think some of her matches have been absolutely fantastic. And I know that people kind of will will rag on the defensive players, the counter-punching players a little bit because they like the power play. But ultimately, the most exciting tennis comes from when you get the counter-puncher, the real athlete, the Wozniacki, the Halep, the Svitolina against the power player of the Serena. I mean, we think about the Wimbledon final this year between Serena and Halep. You know, that I think is where you get the best tennis. Um, and then actually the next level down would be two counter punches against each other. And probably the worst tennis is two big hitters just slogging the ball around, <laughs> which, uh, you know, and that's just the way matchups work, isn't it? You can't really control that. But she's been responsible for a huge amount of epic matches. She broke through at such a young age. I mean, I, I'm one year older than her so I remember her well in the juniors she was world number one in juniors she was always going to be great it was a phenomenally strong year I remember that one Wimbledon we had it was you had Wozniacki you had uh Radvanska Cornet Pasek and remember Cornet and Pasek both broke, broke the top 100 at, at 16 as well you have Pavlyuchenkova who was world number one at 14 14 I mean it was an insanely strong group and I'm forgetting an awful Ribarakova as well I mean there are so many more um, the 89s and 90s were exceptional as players particularly the 90s um, and she was part of that bunch and she was pushing they were all pushing each other she was pushing everybody forward and look the, the names I just listed, who got to number one in the world? Wozniacki. Who won a Grand Slam? Wozniacki. You know, she was number one for over 70 weeks. That's crazy. That is, that's one of the longest number ones you know, ever, really. So she 
I think she will be more appreciated as time goes on. I mean, I personally have always appreciated her. I've always enjoyed doing her matches. I've really respected how she's improved. And it's very difficult when you're in those big moments and she doesn't have a big weapon. You get to that crunch point and you just think, okay, I just like to hit a forehand winner now. And she just can't. That's really tough. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough thing to try and deal with. But she's a phenomenal athlete. And um, and I thought she think she's brought a lot to the sport, you know, for sure. Did you ever face her? Oh, have you looked this up now? Because I don't know. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I don't think I did. No, I, I didn't play against Wozniak. I played quite a few tournaments with her. So I remember her as a, a junior strongly. But no, I didn't ever play against her. But she was, um, yeah, she was just exceptional. But she really was part of that mentality of thinking, which was um, just hours. It was quantity. So her and her dad, from a very young age, it was just out on court, all hours of the day, thousands and thousands of balls being struck, just play every single week of the year, every match you possibly can. And believe it or not, when she got to being a professional tennis player, she actually toned it down in terms of how much she played. I wouldn't go as far to say she almost burnt out, but she had to adapt when she got to being a professional. She had to recognise that actually, okay, I need to steady the ship here. It's been go, go, go just need to balance things out. I need to try and find a way to make this sustainable. And to her credit, her and her dad found a way to make that happen. And they did a phenomenal job. I think it's been a brilliant career. Um, and I hope uh, hope she goes out with a bang, chasing down some wide balls as normal, <laughs> probably coming back from like match points down. <laughs> I have a couple of dog-related facts for you. Oh. Firstly, um, you know we sent out the mugs, the tennis mugs, people to drink out of. I might have inadvertently started a call or a clamour for dog bowls. Okay, that's not happening. (laughs) Is that not happening? Nice try. But no, we've only just got over the mugs. People have only just received the final ones. We can't start thinking about the next thing yet. Okay, right. So for anyone listening with a dog, I'm sorry... Naomi has said no to you dog bowls. Because also, I know that if I get a tennis dog bowl, Sven will not use it. He will look at it and go, mm, nah. The amount of time you've been away from Sven, chances are he's just genuinely going to ignore you. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, it's a case of abandonment. He's got a good case for that right now. Yeah, he ignores me at the best of times. It's fine. We've been away for two weeks. And secondly, no, I don't really understand dogs and how dogs... Well, no, I know how they come together, but like like a Chewini, the, the Kevin Anderson and <laughs> Kelsey Anderson dog. You know what I mean by come together? Right. Oh, okay. W- what is yes. that? And we found out it was a Chihuahua and a, a Wiener? Wiener? Wiener Wiener? A Vinerama, maybe? Why? No, it wasn't a Vinerama. It's a Vinerama. It's not <laughs> going to... And I'd love to see a Chihuahua and a Vinerama. A Vinerama is not going to sleep with a Chihuahua. Well, I don't know what the weenie bit is. That is never going to happen. No, it's not. No, I think it's called a weenie or a whiny or a, it, a wiener. <laughs> anyway, I've got another one for you. Are you ready? Okay. A puggle. Oh, a puggle. Oh, well, I know. I've met puggles. Puggles are amazing. Yeah, but what what has slept with what to produce a puggle? <laughs> I love how you say slept with. <laughs> well, as if, as if it was in a bed. How else? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have such a romantic idea I love <laughs> how the animal world works. You need to watch Attenborough, okay? It doesn't work like that. I like to think we're a family-friendly podcast. Okay, so what... What had its way with what? <laughs> <laughs> She's a pug and a beagle. 
Okay, you see, it's I, a puggle. It's see, th- to me, a pug getting together with a beagle is weird, if not wrong. Is it not? Oh, I don't know. Can you imagine not in bed together, obviously, but can you imagine a pug and a beagle getting friendly? There's all different sorts of rules and regulations about crossbreeds. Um, and I think they're broken quite frequently. I'm not sure whether the puggle was breaking the rules, <laughs> but I think there are certain things that ethically shouldn't be done. But I think puggles are quite legitimate, to be honest. Really? A pug and a beagle? Well, all I know is that there are a long list of dog breeds that I should have got instead of getting Sven. And you can whack <laughs> puggle on there as well, because it's basically Sven, any other Sven, if you're breed. listening... Which she won't be. She doesn't mean it. Oh, She's coming home and she misses you. Now, finally, before, because you have to leave me this evening. Yes. I'm not sure why, but you kept you kept telling me, we were talking about doing this. You said, I have to leave. And you gave me a very exact time. And yeah. I was like, okay, but you've got, you've got other things to do. But finally, I watched the Elena Baltasha Thatcher documentary. Oh, you did? Oh, brilliant. How, well, how did you find it? Uh, amazing. Uh, very moving. So much stuff I didn't know about her in terms of the struggles she went through and how she basically didn't tell anyone she was struggling and just kept on going and no incredible. Um, it was it was very emotional at times. I watched it on my own. I felt it's one of those things just banned everyone from the room, settled down to watch it. And it was it was incredible. I'd recommend anyone watch it. I loved your your two or three little pieces. I love that. I like your stripy <laughs> jumper. Very nice. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I would, I I still haven't seen the Andy Murray resurfacing. And interestingly, a few more people on Twitter are saying, oh, there was so much hype. Does it live up to its hype? But I I haven't seen it yet. Oh, I hate it when that happens. Okay, I need to lower my expectations now then. So I, well, that's what I kind of, I need to take a step back from it before I watched it. But the, the Baltacha, which I didn't know a lot about, the documentary I knew about her but I didn't know about what was in the documentary apart from you being in it before I watched it and it was and hearing from her dad and her brother and her husband and all her friends and it was it was amazing and a good friend of ours Eleanor Preston um so yeah I would recommend everybody everybody watch it and I should just say that I am like the least important bit in it it's not (laughs) it's it's not about me in any way (laughs) it's definitely about Elena uh about her life but no I I learned loads from it as well I mean what was quite interesting is they had people from different parts of her life so they had sort of Anne Kjothvong who was her peer as it were in the tennis world I really wasn't a peer she was more of my mentor so because she was much older than me and it's not like I ever beat her so you know it was a a totally different relationship so I saw a different bow to what Anne did and what everybody else did so I, I reckon that everybody involved in the documentary including her husband Nino probably her brother as well when they watch the documentary, will learn something new about her, which I think is amazing because I learned loads. Um, you know, I'm sure Anne did and, and whatever. It just is an example of things that I said. I've never said that. I've never really spoken about it to to many people. So there's no there's no way that they would they would know those things. And I didn't know some of the things that Anne said, and that shed a complete different light on their relationship. So yeah, cool. We're in agreement then. Definitely go and see it. Yeah, no, it's, and it's on it's on the iPlayer, BBC iPlayer. You can, there'll be other places, but you can definitely find it on, on the iPlayer. So then that was amazing. And I know you have to go, but I'm just going to leave you with... I mean, I'm actually going to hang up. But I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to leave you with, I have found the perfect Christmas present for you. And I cannot... W- can I, I cannot wait for you to receive your Christmas present. I'm going to go all out on yours then. Well, maybe wait till you see mine. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we have like some sort of budget in mind, I think. Just wait till you see it. Okay. And uh, I don't know why you have to leave, but I know you have to leave. And well, safe flight home tomorrow. Okay, thanks. I'm hanging up. Bye. Bye. Bye.